This is a series about each of our stories in your life, my life. It's a story. You ever notice when you're reading scripture a lot of times, uh, you're looking into the life of people, you're, you're reading their story, and uh, it's fascinating to me that God will sometimes show the darker times in the life journey, but more than often, he just kind of zeroes in on that turning point, that point in a human being's life where they reconnect with their creator, where they put their trust in him, they become who they were always meant to become, and they start doing the things they were always meant to do. And so it's a powerful, beautiful thing. Your story, my story, was always meant to include that chapter. There was supposed to be, there must be, I hope in each of our lives, that chapter where we reconnect with Christ, our creator. There's an overarching verse that we've been using throughout this series. It's from a New Testament book called Colossians. Paul writing to followers of Christ, living in a Greek city called Colossae. And here's what he says. He says, for by him, and he's speaking about Christ, for by him were all things created. So when you read in the beginning of the Bible, it says in the beginning God created. Now you know it's Christ. It says, for by him were all things created, which are in heaven and which are in earth, things visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This is talking about angelic uh, civilizations and governments. All things were created by him. And then the really big phrase, and what does it say? For him. Your story, my story. You were made. Christ made you especially for himself. There is nothing more that is you than when you become intimate relationally with Christ, your creator. You might be thinking, man, I'm, I'm not a very religious person. You inside were always made for Christ. That's where the real you will, will come forth. It goes on to say, Christ existed before all things, and in union with him, that, that's the idea, in union with his word, with his will, with his ways, all things find their what? Proper place. My life, your life will find order. It will find harmony. You will find, I will find my proper place in union with Christ. Again, in union with his word and his will. All, all the creator is trying to do is get us to live according to our design for our good. Uh, we are experimenters. You know, we, we come into this world just trying to figure out why are we here, what works, what doesn't work, what's pleasurable, what's not. And our loving creator is waiting to just say, listen, I can tell you in advance, this doesn't ever work. Don't do it. This does. Do this and you'll see for yourself this is the way you were designed to live. Now, what I've encouraged us to do in this series, and uh, we had an interesting uh, confrontation in the first service about this. I've urged all of you to write your story. And uh, we all have a story. So we helped you out by dividing it up like this. My life before Christ. For me, that would have been the first 23 years of my life. Who I was, what I was like before Christ. Second chapter, how I came to trust in Christ. How you came to trust in Christ, if you have. And then the third chapter, my life since trusting in Christ. Most of us uh, that, that, you know, have gone through the experience of trusting in Christ our Creator, we could work this out. Now, this is a very powerful thing to do. First of all, for you, it, it will be such a blessing, I promise you. You go through the thought process to think through your story and actually write it out. It will be one of the most powerful things you've ever experienced in your life. And then it will become a very powerful tool that you can share with other people. You'll, you'll know your story. You'll have it at your fingertips. And when the opportunity comes for you to express to somebody why it is that you believe Christ is important, well, you can just kind of tell them your personal story. Now, here's where we got in trouble in the first service. 
We have, we have received some. Our goal was to receive many, 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 and we're going we're gonna to put them on the wall out there and then share some with you week to week, but we haven't received many. We've received few. So how many of you have written out your story? Let me see your hands. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you. Did you pass them in? If you haven't, please pass them in. You can put anonymous if you don't want to put your name. That's okay. Now, for the incriminating question. <laughs> How many of you, even though you've heard us plead for these for now the third week, you have not taken the time and trouble, ink and pen, and written out your story? Hold your hands up high. Bad, 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 bad. <laughs> no, all kidding aside, man, I so wish you'd do this. I know you get home, you get busy, and, and it's a hassle to write things. I promise you, this will enrich your, your life, and it will be a tool that you can use to enrich the life of someone else. All right. We're going to look at a guy today that his life had that chapter that we're all meant to have where he met Christ, till I met you. And um, for we in here that if we have that chapter, uh, we know it's, it's the most dynamic, it's the most exciting, it's the most meaningful thing. Sometimes we have a hard time articulating it to other people, why Christ matters so much to us, why his involvement in our life has made such a difference. But we're going to look at some stories of some individuals, and we've looked at two, and now we're looking at a third, and see how dynamically their lives were changed in a positive way once they reconnected with their creator and just started living the way that we're all designed to live. Uh, that, that's important to have tucked away. All right, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. That'll be page 1163, Luke chapter 5. And we're going to look at verse 27 through 32. Luke 5, and that's page 1163. Those Bibles that are near you on your chair. And it's just a simple few verses. 1163, Luke 5, 27. Here we go. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. He's also slash called Matthew. Sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him. And he got up and he followed him, leaving everything behind. And then Levi gave a great banquet in his house for Jesus. This is evidently later in the day. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their experts in the law, that is the law of Moses, the law of God, they complained to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I'm going to unpack this for you a bit, but let me just say right away. In the book of 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this. It says that God doesn't want anyone to perish or self-destruct or be destroyed, but for all, A-L-L, to come to repentance. Repentance is a complete 180-degree change of, of uh, mind, change of perspective. So, the scriptures say that we all need to repent. These religious leaders that were there, uh, you know, looking down on the tax collectors and what they called the sinners. The sinners in those days were just people that didn't really even try to live according to the law of God. You know, they just, they just felt like they were too big of a failure to even try. And so they were looked down upon. 
But they didn't see themselves. Here's the deal. The religious leaders in that day, they didn't see themselves as in need of God's mercy, his grace, his rescue, his intervention in their lives. They thought they were good enough. They thought that by their works, by their accomplishment of certain levels of right behavior and trying to live in accordance with God's rituals and so forth, that that God owed them. They didn't know him. And they were also quite convinced that God absolutely hated certain classes of people, that they were disgusting to him, that they were absolutely condemned, that there was no hope for redemption, and amongst those classes were the tax collectors. Now, you probably have some feelings about tax collectors yourself. (laughs) But not the same kind that they had back in biblical days, okay? Uh, The tax collectors in biblical days, was a unique situation. The Roman Empire... Uh, had conquered most of the known world in those days, and it had conquered Israel. And so whenever Rome conquered a nation, they would take people from amongst that nation, since they knew the language and so forth, and they would make them tax collectors. And it was, it was a great opportunity. If you didn't mind being hated and despised, you could make a lot of money. Because these tax collectors, they were backed by the Roman army. So here you are, you're a fellow Jew, you become a traitor to every other Jew, to the very nation of God, but you're doing it so that you can live a pretty lavish life and nobody can bother you because you're backed by the Roman army. So you have to understand the frame of mind that went into this in biblical days. The tax collectors were looked upon as the very worst of the worst. They were betrayers to the the very nation of God. They were considered to be absolutely beyond redemption, no hope, condemned, despised, and hated by God. No sense in them even thinking about God because it was too far gone for them. Likewise, the class that was called the sinners, and as I said earlier, the the sinners were just considered the people that they didn't really even try to get into learning the law of Moses and so forth. It was like, man, it's over my head. It's too deep. I can't handle it. I'm not even going to try. And so they were considered also beyond hope, beyond redemption, that God despised them. These religious leaders thought, though, that God especially loved them since they were trying so hard. But how many of you know there's a big difference between trying and trust? You see, I can be trying so hard to please God or to get God on my side and off my back. That's not trust at all. Trust is me saying, you are the rightful Lord and ruler of my life and of this entire universe. You have proven to me your trustworthiness. I now come to you because I'm convinced you're trustworthy. You love me enough to die on the cross for me. You're powerful enough to rise from the dead. So I'm now going to choose to put my trust in you and follow you fully and freely and forever. Not because there's anything righteous in me. Just because there's so much that's so beautiful and righteous in you. Trying is legalism. Every world religion is the same. Every world religion is human beings trying to get some kind of a deity off their back and on their side. These religious leaders in Jesus' day, here's the, here's the, the giveaway for them. When God showed up, Jesus is God. When God showed up, they hated him. They dogged him all through his ministry, and they finally instigated his crucifixion. So you can be really, listen to me, you got to listen to me, some of you. You can be really religious and really evil in heart. Religion is useless. This book does not teach religion. It teaches people, human beings, coming back into a relationship with their creator, the kind of relationship that we were created for, one in which we trust him, and because we trust him, we live in accord with his ways. All right. So we we see the setting. Now let let me develop it just a bit more so you see what a scandal this is. Jesus was known in his day as being a teacher, Uh, The term would have been used a rabbi. In Israel, that was a big deal. They were like the rock stars of the day. 
And so he was recognized as being a rabbi, a teacher. And the really high-profile uh, rabbis, what they would do is they would, they would look amongst uh, people that were pupils, learners in Judaism, and when they saw somebody that had a lot of promise, you know, like the best and the brightest students, the best and the brightest pupils, well, a rabbi would go over to that best and brightest student and he'd say, hey, I want you to follow me. Now, this was an extraordinary privilege. Most uh, students, you know, biblical students in those days, they, they never got asked. They were looked over. Only the elite, best and brightest prospects were asked to follow a rabbi. But, but now here's what it meant. When a rabbi said, come follow me, if you did it, it meant that you were now going to dedicate the rest of your life to learning the teachings of this particular rabbi, this particular teacher, not only learning them, but allowing them to shape and to mold your life, and you were going to try for the rest of your life to become just like your rabbi, your teacher, so that you could carry on your teacher, your rabbi's teaching. Folks, folks, do you understand that when we read these passages in Scripture where Jesus says, come follow me, and it's to you and I? Do you understand that's the context? Far from it meaning that we give some sort of a just, you know, sentimental uh, agreement to the te some teachings of Scripture or that God even exists. Oh, no, 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 no. When, when we read this passage about come follow me, believe in Jesus and trust in him, it's talking about that kind of relationship, entrance into that kind of relationship where we want to be just like Jesus, where we are going to dedicate the rest of our lives to learning and doing his teaching. Why? Because we trust him. So Jesus is creating quite a scandal here because the religious leaders are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're, if you're supposed to be a teacher, if you're supposed to be a rabbi, you should know that this Levi guy, this tax collector, this traitor to our nation, he's the scum of the earth. He's the worst of the worst. This guy's beyond redemption. What are you doing calling a guy like that? We knew you were not the real deal. Yeah, you can do miracles that we can't do. Yeah, you, you say things we can't say. You're more loving. You're more righteous. You never sin, but this is a giveaway. If you choose a guy like that, you can't be the real deal. They were sort of assuring themselves by Jesus' choice of this unwanted guy, very unwanted guy, that Jesus was not credible. But it was just the opposite. These religious leaders had given human beings the impression that there was such a thing as a person or a class of people that God didn't want that he would never want, that he would never have anything to do with, and that's not true. And so here's Jesus, who is God, and he's revealing, I not only want everybody, I want the worst of the worst if you're only willing. How many of you have ever seen these, these things on TV? I, I, I kind of like them. I mean, they're sad and happy at the same time. But it's like a flash flood occurs, you know, and inevitably, inevitably, and I bet you some of you have done it, somebody drives into the flooded roadway, and next thing you know, their car is being swept along, and where do they end up always? on top of their roof of the car. Do you ever notice that? They're always standing on top of the roof of the car trying not to drown. And then what happens? A helicopter, you know, comes swooping in and, you know, they, they lower the line and then they finally, you know, usually fumble around. I've never quite understood that, man. I would so grab onto that thing, you know, wrap it around every which way, you know. Uh, but they're like, Ugh. <laughs> So finally, you know, they get lifted up and it's a good, a good thing, good, you know, outcome but I want you to think about a few things the person that is standing on the roof of that car okay desperate helpless 
It doesn't matter. They might be a nuclear physicist. They may be the richest man or woman in the world. They may be the president of some country. But right now, they're helpless. They are in the same situation as anybody else. That's one thing to consider. Number two, the pilot, the helicopter pilot. The helicopter pilot doesn't know who this is. This could be the most wonderful person in the world that they're saving off the roof of the car, or he could be a stinking serial killer. Does the pilot care? No, 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 no. The pilot doesn't care. The pilot only cares about one thing. This is human life, and if I can save this human life, I'm going to save it. The only question in the pilot's mind is, can you get a hold of that rope sufficiently and wrap it around, <laughs> around yourself? You see, this is kind of a depiction of humanity's real condition and God's attitude, we are all lost. If you don't believe it, you're dying. Sin has done its damage in us. We're dying. Unless God infuses new life in us, we're going to perish. That's the evidence that we are sin-sick creatures. Those religious leaders didn't get that, that they were in just as much trouble as the man they despised and considered beyond redemption. And then they didn't consider the heart of God. The heart of God is the helicopter pilot. He's saying, you know, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. You're all in trouble anyway. I love all of you anyhow. All I need from you is, are you willing to grab a hold of the lifeline? Are you willing to put trust in me? Are you willing to come back? Let me pull you back into my realm so that you can be everything that I always created you to be and to do. That, that's the issue. They, the religious leaders in Jesus, they didn't get that. And he used Matthew, I believe, as an example to create the, the appropriate kind of shock, to shock them with the depths and the width of God's grace and his love because it was something that they really smothered in the way they handled people. It's an interesting thing about rejection. There's not a one of us in this room that hasn't experienced being unwanted, uninvited, rejected, left out, made to feel like we don't fit in. We've all experienced this thing of rejection. You can't live in this world. Listen, Jesus, the most perfect being that ever walked the planet, he was rejected most of his life, and ultimately he was rejected to the point of being put to death. So you've experienced rejection. I've experienced rejection. Here's the thing I can tell you about every human being. It hurts. You may feel like, well, I've grown a lot, you know, and I'm matured, and it doesn't get to me the way it used to get to me. You've kind of adjusted your expectations. I know, I know. We all have to do that, but it still hurts. It always hurts, and some of us, it hurts irreparably. We, we literally still hurt from some level of rejection or feeling unwanted or being unwanted or uninvited or, or included that we've experienced in our past. It always has a painful, destructive side to it. Have you ever thought about why? Have you ever thought about what, what expectations there must be inside of our heads? First of all, why? why? Why does it bother us so much? Well, the only reason it bothers us so much is because, like Scripture says, we're made by Christ and for Christ. We're made in the image of God. We were made for an existence, a life in which we lived in this perfect union with our God and His will and His word, and we were surrounded by a community of people who were in the same kind of union with God's will and word, loving people, accepting people. We were born to live in a world where we were always loved, always wanted, always cared for. People were interested in us. They liked us. They loved us. They included us. They invited us. That's written inside your DNA. Spiritually, you can't get rid of it, and that's why it hurts. Every little degree of being made to feel unwanted hurts because it's an abnormal condition that we're never made to experience. Listen to some interesting things from uh, a physical side, a scientific side. There's a guy named uh, Matthew Lieberman, and in a book called Social, showing the, the dire need we have for connection, uh, he says some interesting things. The most interesting part of the study is how. Their brain scans 
process the social, process social rejection. What they did was they played this little game. How many of you have ever played keep away when you were kids? You know, you're playing catch, and, and so you start out, three of you are throwing it equally to one another. Well, they had this thing set up an experiment, and then as the game went on, two started throwing it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and left one out. And in every case, the person was very upset that it was left out, even though they knew it was only a game. So that's how they got this process. So they process social rejection. To the brain, social pain feels a lot like physical pain. A broken heart can feel like a broken what? Leg. Same registry in the brain. Lieberman writes, looking at the brain scan side by side without knowing which was an analysis of physical pain and which was an analysis of social pain, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Emotional pain is just as real as physical pain. Isn't that provocative? We're we're not just physiological beings. We're not just animals. We are beings that have this, this delicate soul. And so we feel pain in a spiritual sense, even though it's not physical. Listen to these words of one that felt unwanted, and and it shows it can happen to anyone. This is from King David, the the guy that the Scripture says he was a man after God's own heart, and yet he experienced tons of rejection, tons of exclusion, tons of unfair judgment in his life. Listen to his words in Psalm 41. David says, My enemies ask this cruel question about me. When will he finally die and be forgotten? You may have had somebody in your life that felt that way, but I just wish you'd die. That's, That's the ultimate rejection. When someone comes to visit, he pretends to be friendly. He thinks of ways to defame me, and when he leaves, he slanders me. David says, they, they kind of act like my friend in my face, but then they just rip me to shreds. He goes on, all who hate me whisper insults about me to one another. They plan ways to do me harm. Always putting the worst construction on everything he said and did, and always looking for a way to bring him down. David experienced rejection in a severe way. Nobody's immune to it. You can't get away from it in this world. Jesus himself experienced tons of rejection, and still experiences extensive rejection today by the vast majority of the world. Our God is the one that has been rejected more consistently and outrageously than any of us ever will. Another interesting study was done. University uh, Columbia Souter School of Business concluded that being ignored at work, just ignored, is worse than being harassed or bullied at work. The study concluded that ostracism, which seems better than overt harassment, was actually more painful. Ostracism actually leads people to feel more helpless, like they're not worthy of any attention at all. According to the study, being ignored, excluded, shunned signals that, no one, signals that one is so inconsequential as a social being that one is unworthy of others' attention or reaction. I don't know if you remember doing this or not, but when we're kids, more of us, more of us than others, um, occasionally we'll get in trouble on purpose because at least when you were in trouble, man, you had somebody's attention, right? You may have felt like you were being a little bit neglected, but when you did something bad, you got plenty of attention, right? We would rather have the wrong kind of attention than no attention at all. That's what that study shows. One of the cruelest things we can do is to treat somebody as a non entity like they have no value no purpose i want to throw something out i said in the first service and i just want to say to you that are christ followers whether you're students or whether you're you know people that are in the workplace um, there's usually more than enough people in any environment that are the rejects you can usually spot them they're the ones neglected they're the ones left out they're the ones that nobody wants to hang around nobody wants to talk to nobody wants to sit with people want to avoid and i want to challenge you if christ is in you wouldn't he want to go 
and initiate something with these people that no one else wants to initiate anything with? Wouldn't he want to go to you just like he went to Levi, the outcast of his day, the one that seemed irredeemable? You said, man, Randy, that person's got so many problems. I, I can't solve them all. I don't know. I wouldn't even know what to do or what to say. What if you just went and just showed them that they mattered? I, I don't know. You, you, you think about it. You think about what the Lord might want you to do in that. Listen to David's words. And uh, Well, actually, before I go there, I, I, I want to share something with you. Um, Rejection of any kind, as I said, is so painful to us that inevitably we come up with some way to, to cope with it because, you know, we can't, we can't ignore the pain even though we try to. So although I could have written a, a long, long list of things, I just really want to go through a list quick that I wrote up because I think it might be helpful to some of you. If you see yourself, if you think this might be you, please, please own it because the Spirit of God's trying to trying to help you to see some things. One of the ways that we deal with rejection is we just harden ourselves. I, I think that's what Matthew probably did. Matthew probably said, okay, everybody hates me. At least I'm going to be rich and powerful and I'll have some pleasure. So to heck with everybody, you know. We kind of sometimes feel like I'm going to reject them before they reject me. We just get hard. We harden ourselves. Some of us wear masks. We, we have several different identities that we play with. We keep changing the way we are with various people in hopes that we'll finally find a mask that won't be rejected. And even if they reject us, we're hiding behind the mask and we, we feel a little less vulnerable in any case. Very close to that is hiding. Some of us, we just stay hidden. We're always like this. People only get a projection. They think they're getting the real us, but they're never getting the real us. And we feel like as long as I hide my real self, you can't reject me because all you're getting is what I show you, but that's not the real me. Of course, we lose our soul in this process. Some of us become shape-shifting chameleons. We become everything to everybody all the time. We become yes people. We'll do whatever we need to do, say whatever we need to say, go along with whatever we need to go along with in order in hopes to avoid the sting of rejection. Another way to lose your soul, man, because there's no authenticity in that whatsoever. Others just plunge into distractions. Anything to just keep my mind so busy that I can't, I can't feel these uncomfortable feelings that I haven't been able to sufficiently process. Another way is pleasure. I just satiate myself with so much pleasure that I forget or at least escape a little bit of the pain or power. Um, Matthew, Levi, seems to have done that. You know, he, he was backed by the Roman government. So a little bit of power gives you the sense of control. Some people try to avoid the sting of uh, rejection that way. The other way that we do it is synthetic mood alteration. And I'm talking usually about alcohol and drugs, but it can be other things. It could be going on spending binges and things like that. But we try to alter our mood in a synthetic way, not based on truth, not based on who we are or how we're living, but get some chemistry going so that we don't feel that uncomfortable feeling, that, that doggone feeling of unprocessed or insufficiently processed rejection. It just makes you feel a little bit bad all the time. You don't know why. Some of us find a community of rejects. That's what Matthew did. You know, it doesn't matter how bad you are. You can always find some people just like yourself, and you just hang with them because at least you have somebody. This is why gang phenomenon is so popular. You know, these people that feel unloved by usually their parents, they find love in the streets. I know a little something about that myself from my, my childhood. The other way, and this is the dark side, is that when we are rejected, when we are excluded, we're never included, we're treated like we have no worth, we're not wanted, and those kinds of things, we feel like we're being judged we just get angry, man, because something clicks in us because we know something. We know, listen to me, my feelings matter as much as yours. You, you shouldn't be treating me this way. You should treat me as though I have worth. I know I have worth. You know I have worth. How dare you treat me this way, neglect me, uh, treat me as though I have no existence. And we become hostile 
and bitter and aggressive and, and a lot of times violent people. Now, these are insufficient coping systems that we can drift into. I could have listed a lot more. If some of these sound like you, listen, grab that. That's the Spirit of God trying to bring light on you to free you from this insufficient coping system because these things will keep you a prisoner. They really will. Listen to David's words. David finally, again, experiencing so much rejection, he came to the place where he says, even if my father and my mother abandoned me, the Lord would take me in. And that's maybe the worst rejection of all when we're vulnerable kids and we kind of know these are the people that are supposed to love me. I'm supposed to matter to them. They're supposed to care for me and be interested in me and want me and enjoy me. And when that doesn't happen, that's a dagger to the heart. Um, that's something that can start a poison in your soul that's very, very hard to shake off. Um, I'm sure some of you in here, even hearing that made you feel uncomfortable. I, I know it myself. Uh, never knew who my father was. My mother told me verbally she wished she would have aborted me like she had others, other kids. Uh, I was thrown out by her multiple times. Just get out, get out in the street. My grandparents would take me in. They'd get sick of me, throw me out. I learned very quickly in life I was a throwaway. I didn't matter. I was a pain in everybody's neck. I was unwanted, unloved. Never heard the word, you know, your love. Never hugged, never kissed, nothing like that. You've got to figure out things like that pretty quick in life because they'll do some really dark things inside your soul. I ended up hanging around with a bunch of guys who were equally, you know, hurt like me. All came from dysfunctional families, and we became our own little dysfunctional community. That's what Matthew did. But some of you, you've got to process this stuff because it'll kill you. It'll, it'll, it'll steal the life away from you that God wants you to have. Listen to these words. So David says, I know, even if my parents abandoned me, the Lord's there. Matthew discovered that even though everyone around him hated him, despised him, told him he was a reject, it wasn't true. Jesus said, come, I'm going to treat you like an elite one. Come, I want you to follow me. I want, I want you to be one that represents me. I'm going to be a partner with you. Listen to these words from Isaiah that kind of urge us, invite us into this kind of a partnership with God. The Lord says, come now. Let us reason together. God says, just, just come close. Just come on. Let, let me show you my ways. Let's just get talking. You're not rejected. You're not beyond redemption. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, Matthew had a messy life. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. We get close to God. We start reasoning with him. We start seeing his ways. We start seeing the insanity of sin. We start seeing the insanity of living self-destructively. And it starts to change us and cleanse us. You'll see another verse that alludes to that earlier. So the life of one unwanted by others is epitomized by Matthew. But his life also epitomizes the life of one that's wanted by Christ. That chapter happened in his story. It changed his life. He was chosen by God on two occasions. He's chosen by Jesus in that very situation that we read. But then later on, the Holy Spirit chooses Matthew again to be the author of the Gospel of Matthew. A gospel that has affected millions of people's lives all through the generations right down to this day. So he who was rejected and considered a reject by the society of his day was very much a chosen one in the eyes of God. Listen to these words from Jesus or, or from Luke 15 about Jesus. It says, now all the tax collectors, these are the unredeemables, and the sinners, these are the ones that didn't even try to keep up with the law of God, we're coming to hear him, Jesus. They were drawn to him. 
But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. To eat with somebody in biblical days, it was to, to go into a full relational identification with them. You were saying, hey, whatever you think about this one, think about me. And Jesus did that. And he's God. And that's how he feels about those that society rejects. Here's another one from Jesus in Matthew 21, 31. He says, I assure you and most solemnly say to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. He was talking again to those religious leaders. Why would they get into the kingdom before them? Remember the image of the helicopter and the rope? All's required is that you know you're lost and you grab the rope. And that's how Jesus reaches out to us. It's an interesting story that I came across of a couple. Their name is uh, Mike and Barbara Ken Savage, and they live in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Back in December 28, 2005, uh, Barbara got a hankering for some clams. How many of you ever had a hankering for some clams? Can I see your hands? Okay. So uh, Michael went out, bought some clams, I don't know, four dozen or so, something like that, and they brought them home, and Michael was doing the shucking, not the jiving, but the shucking part of the, the clams. And um, for some of you that are too young, you don't even know what those terms mean. But <laughs> uh, as he was shucking these clams, he noticed that one was like, had the ick look to it. It was all discolored and looked like it was dead. They're not supposed to be dead. They're supposed to be alive. And uh, so he kind of set it aside. Wife Barbara comes in a little bit later, and she looks at it, and goes, ooh, what is this? And she starts messing around with it, picking at it, and opens it up. And here's what was inside of it. There it is. It's a purple pearl. They're extraordinarily rare. Experts estimate that roughly one in two million quahog clams contain a gem-quality pearl like the one found by the Kren savages. Due to the great rarity of the find, it has been difficult to even place a value on it, though some have estimated the pearl to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Pearl of great price, kind of. Some of you got to hear this. This is God's word directly to you today. You do feel like an outcast. You don't ever feel like you fit in. You're never at peace anywhere with anyone. You always feel like a reject, like people are always judging you. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not fast enough. You're not talented enough. Matthew knew that feeling. And this story is there so that your story can be different. You are a pearl of great price to Jesus. And your beauty will be brought forth if you're just willing to put yourself in his hands. And then live your life loved. Live your life like one that is accepted of God and will always be accepted amongst his people. At least his people that are mature enough to reflect his image in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to read you a passage, and we're getting ready to close, and this is going to be an uncomfortable passage, and I'm deliberately doing this because I want you to feel the discomfort first. So here it is. It's the Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Corinth, followers of Christ who were very confused. They, they, they were confused about what does it mean to really trust Christ and follow him, and should that and how should that change your life and so forth, and Paul writes these words to them. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? They won't be a part of it. They won't be accepted in. Don't delude yourselves. He's saying, don't kid yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, 
who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, that would have been Matthew, who are greedy, that would have been him, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, that would have been Matthew too. None of them will share in the kingdom of God. Please leave this, this slide up there for a minute. Are you on that list? Of people that will not be in the kingdom of God, that are beyond redemption, so it would sound. Are you on that list? I am. It goes on. Some of you, what is the next word? Use, past tense. You used to, you used to do these things. You used to be thieves. You used to be adulterers. You used to be homosexuals. You used to speak to people abusively and contempt. You used to. Some of you used to do these things, but you have what? Cleansed yourselves. You're not the same, it's saying. You have been set apart for God. You have come to be counted righteous through the power of the Lord Yeshua or the Lord Jesus, the Messiah or the Christ and the Spirit of our God. That's the complete Jewish Bible translation in this particular passage. It's beautifully precise. Can you receive that? That that you and I and everyone has a real sin problem. It's deep. It's hopeless. We're the person standing on the car in the flood. But that once we trust in Christ... Something happens inside of us. Instead of following our own ways like we had done before, we now follow his ways because we really trust him. And we cleanse ourselves. And the old patterns and the old sinful habits and the old strongholds in our life, we deal with them by God's grace, and they are gone. We do not remain the same people. That's abnormal. You say, Randy, are you saying that, you know, Christians supposed to be perfect? I am saying that a Christian must want to be and a Christian by God's power and grace can progressively be just like Jesus. Remember what I told you? What it meant when a rabbi said, come follow me? And that's Jesus' invitation to every human being. It's not come and believe in facts about me. It's come follow me, which means we live every day to become just like Jesus. And God doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't empower us to do. And that's really good news. That means these crazy, weird habits that have destroyed so much of our lives, they don't have to continue to be indulged. Matthew lived a whole new life. He became, he went from being a despised tax collector to being an apostle, a representative of the truth about God and the truth about life. Through him, millions have been brought back to a relationship with their creator Christ the relationship we were all meant to be in the part of the story because of Matthew he didn't stay the same guy he left it all behind the scripture says and that's what opportunity we each have as we sit here today I want to close with a story from uh, Lee Strobel he's a tremendous Christian writer writes a lot of books about the evidences for the Christian faith and uh, the story goes back to the Korean War and this American vet uh, meets with a Korean lady in Korea and they have sexual relationships and then, you know, he goes back to the States and he doesn't think anything of it. She becomes pregnant and she has the child. Now the child would be half American, half Korean. The child came out with curly, blondish hair and so it was obviously not a pure Korean child and in that society of that day, I don't know how it is today, 
you were looked down upon kind of like Matthew. They, they had a word. It was supposedly the most derisive word that could be said about a human being. They were called tuki, which meant alien devil. That's how despised mixed breed children were. Well, this mother tries to raise this kid, and this kid is harassed constantly. Every time the kid meets another kid, every time the mother's out in public, they're both harassed. Tukey, Tukey, alien devil. And they're just, just having a miserable time. Seven years she tries to raise this kid, and she finally gets so beaten down, she does the unthinkable. She just puts this seven-year-old child out on the street. Yeah, for two years, this kid tries to survive and somehow does on the streets in Korea, all the time being mocked, all the time being hated and despised. Finally, an orphanage of some sort finds this kid, brings her in into the orphanage, and her life starts to stabilize a little bit. Well, the, the orphanage has kids of all different ages, from babies you know, on up to her age. By that time, she was nine years old. And the story goes, great excitement started filling the orphanage because news came that some American couple were going to come to the orphanage and they wanted to adopt a little baby boy. Well, even though, you know, this little girl, she's a child of nine, she's still excited and they start getting all the little baby boys and they're giving them baths and they're cleaning them up and dressing them up so they can look their best. And all the orphans are excited for the fact that one child at least is going to be wanted and taken. So the story goes, the couple comes to the uh, orphanage and uh, evidently the man was very big because the little girl in her recollection, she said, this man who looked like Goliath, you know, came in. And she said he was picking up the babies one by one in these huge hands. And she said, I could just see his love. I could see his love for each and every kid. And she says, I knew that if he would have had the money, that couple, they would have taken every one of us in that orphanage. They would have taken us all. And he kept holding each baby, she said. And he would look so lovingly, and then tears would start to come down his face. And she said, then all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he saw me. And I'm just going to read you her words at this point. He saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now, let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body, I had lice in my hair, I had boils all over me, and I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me, and he began rattling away something in English. She's Korean, she had no idea what he's saying. And I looked up at him, and then he took his huge hand, and he laid it on my face, what was he saying? He was saying something. What was he saying? And here's what he ultimately was saying. I want this child. This is a child for me. Some of us desperately need to hear that coming from the heart of God. Maybe many of us. The only way your scarred, broken, agonized rejected self is ever going to start to heal is you got to hear that words when jesus said to matthew you you're the one i want you're you're the elite when you come follow me i want you as my child if we can learn to live in the light of god's affection his acceptance his love won't be instant won't be overnight won't be perfect but the pain 
and the brokenness that feeling unwanted and feeling rejected has brought will slowly start to heal. And I hope for some of you that's going to start today. I want to ask a second question. Maybe some of you, you know fully about the acceptance and the grace and the love of God, but somehow you still haven't quite let it sink deep enough in your heart, in your soul, to start freeing you up to venture out to believe that other people, other followers of Christ are safe to be around, that they're not always looking at you with judgmental eyes. Maybe today the Spirit of God's nudging you. Go ahead, trust me. Start venturing out, believing that people will think the best and not the worst. And then finally, maybe today Jesus is coming to somebody in here and he's saying to you, Come follow me. I want you. I want you. I want you to follow me. I don't want you to be just a hanger-on in the crowd. I want you to trust me and to follow me fully and to follow me freely and to follow me forever. Maybe that's the response the Spirit of God's waiting on for you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this broken world that leaves us so love-starved and with hearts that ache often, that it's passing, and your kingdom will come, and your will, it will be done, and there will never be any more tears, and no one will ever feel unwanted, unloved, unwelcome again. May that day hasten. Until then, may your spirit help us to take this truth deep in our hearts that we might live it out for your sake and name and the blessing of others. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.